Welcome to Dr. Thoughts, a smart, driven, and fabulous podcast by Drs. Ryan LaValle and Kalia Johnson, where sometimes it's about occupation and sometimes it's just sassy. All right. Well, welcome back, everyone, for another episode of Dr. Thoughts. It's everybody's favorite auntie, Kalia, back with my favorite conference-going buddy, Dr. Ryan LaValle. And we are joined today by our mentors, friends, colleagues, living legends, Dr. Virginia Dickey and Jennifer, a.k.a. Jenny from the block, Womack. <laughs> Dr. Jenny Womack. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. J-Wo, J-Wo, put some respect on it. <laughs> so thank you all for, for joining us. Now, we have a tradition um, at Dr. Thoughts where we, you know, name ourselves as a favorite. So, um, you know, everybody's favorite auntie. I give Ryan a favorite name every episode. So you all have to give yourselves a name. So, so Jenny, I'm going to start with you. What are, are, oh. what, what are you today? Are everybody's have, favorite what? <laughs> I hope we can name one another because I'm going to name Virginia my favorite conference roommate. Oh, um, I like it. There you go. And, um, and that came like later in my conference going after I met Virginia. So I'm, I'm going to claim that. And I will, I will just claim my nickname of J-Wo because I was J-Wo long before J-Lo was born. I like it. I like it. So the the favorite J Wo, like I the said, y'all put Jenny some Jenny on the block. Yes, the the first Jenny on the block. Like I said, y'all put some respect on that. <laughs> All right. How about you, Virginia? Well, I can be Jenny's favorite conference roommate. All right, and we're gonna leave it at that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> oh, thank you all again so much for being here. And um, if if you all don't mind sharing a little bit about um, who you are and, and what you do with our listeners. Virginia, I guess I'll start with you this time. Okay. Uh, that's because I'm the oldest. Uh, <laughs> I've been retired since 2012. I used to teach at UNC and before that at Eastern Michigan. Um, was an OT in mental health in Michigan for many years uh, and taught at Eastern for 12 years and at UNC for 12 years. Um, now I garden and watch MTV, or not MTV, uh, Netflix. <laughs> Showing my age there. I watch Netflix and uh, read books and make quilts. Yeah, you heard I was coming to UNC in 2014 and you were like, I got to get out of here before he gets it. Right. <laughs> but then right. I pulled you back in on my committee. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, and one thing she didn't mention, she is a phenomenal cook and baker. So mm -hmm. I just want to throw that in. Yes. Yes. And All party right. thrower. And party thrower. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Not All many right. in the last year, though. No. No. <laughs> All right. How about you, Jenny? All right. So um, I'm a professor of occupational science and occupational therapy at the University of North Carolina and um, had the great pleasure of overlapping there with Virginia for 12 years, I guess, because you came in 2000, right? And I was, so we right. overlapped and did a lot of co-teaching and sort of bonded around uh, an experience of co-teaching that was positive. Um, so, and then started going to conferences together. So I guess that leads into our topic of today. But um, in other uh, life worlds, I'm a folklorist and um, wishing I were retired, but not quite there. I still have a few more things to do to check off the list. So yes, please. Yeah, I was just about to say this, like, don't leave us yet, please. <laughs> and for our listeners who might not know, tell us what a folklorist is. Oh, wow. Well, that can have so many definitions and I wasn't uh, expecting it. So I'm just going to go with what I was thinking about today, which is I think that um, folklorists capture voices that are not typically given the privilege of speaking. Mm, I, like I like that. that. Short and sweet. You're the best writer, Jenny. I just, yes. I want that skill so I bad. I better go write that down before I forget <laughs> 
Well, as Jenny mentioned, um, today we're talking about conferences and the different things that they do or our experiences with them. It can be a big part of OT practice as well as academia. Um, and we particularly asked these two wonderful mentors to come and talk with us because I have seen at least for sure Virginia sitting in the hallway during sessions having deep conversations with colleagues at conferences um, and just really appreciate the intentionality that you use to go to, to, to conferences and also have been introduced to many people by you um, in, in my world as, as an, a growing OTOS person. Um, and as well as Jenny, I've seen do wonderful presentations alongside me <laughs> at conferences and um, also just has a really intentional way about using and, and developing relationships in, um, in conferences and, and finding ways to create new ideas. So we were really excited to invite you all to have a conversation about what these things are that we do um, in academia and and in practice and AOTA's conference and international conferences and all that stuff. Um, so I think the first question is, you know, what do you all think conferences are for in these different spaces? What, what's the reason we do them? Well, they get called continuing education, but I'm not sure that's the main reason. Uh, <laughs> I think that, you know, they're definitely the way we get socialized into a profession and in a lot of ways I know for students to go from a class of 30 or 50 or whatever to a conference of 5,000 uh, is just really really uh, significant so you know I, I would say that that's one major purpose. Yeah I would agree with that and I think the the proof positive of that is to see how students think about conference after they come back relative to before they go. I think maybe they go with this sense of professional obligation as well as opportunity for continuing education. And when they come back, I just feel like there's this whole sense of uh, a new appreciation for their professional identity, having experienced something with so many other people who you don't have to explain, your, especially in occupational therapy, that you don't have to explain yourself to. You don't have to mm -hmm. define your profession. Mm -hmm. um, other people understand it automatically, and you can start from sort of a different place communicating with one another. Yeah. So listening to you both is sort of making me reflect on my conference experiences as an occupational therapy student versus a doctoral student in occupational science. And I think a lot of, you know, what you mentioned, Jenny, um, about sort of building a professional identity um, was very, like I, I saw conferences um, with that purpose, but then sort of attending conferences as a doctoral student for me, like Virginia mentioned, was a lot more about um, sort of my socialization in academia. Um, and I, I really hadn't reflected on that until hearing you all say that my, my approach and thinking about conferences or conferencing, because I feel like attending them is now a thing, right? It's like- we, Occupational we conferencing. It. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> oh gosh, somebody's gonna write about that. Say, thank you, but no thank you for putting that out there. Um, yeah, but, but, you know, sort of treating them as a, uh, in some way as a as a gateway to becoming the academic that I that I want to be so um yeah it's interesting <laughs> to think about the socialization aspect like I think you learn a lot of like how like that is I felt like at conferences where my comprehensive exams really came to life because I could be like oh this article that you wrote and this article that you know like right. new people you know but at the same time I feel like there's some socializing that may not be great for academia and for yeah. the profession um and like those different habits or sort of the ways that we communicate about philosophy and those sorts of things or sometimes I feel like conferences can be a little like oh, everything's wonderful and we're all great. And there's not a lot mm. of challenge or tension mm -hmm. among um, the, the conversations because we all do sort of come from the same place and, and have those same, have you all ever had experiences like that where sort of like, oh, I wanna, I wanna bring more like contentiousness into this situation, well, um, but. <laughs> I have done that at times <laughs> and it's not necessarily well received. So I think it's important. Uh, 
And you sort of find the people who are like you when you do that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah. No, I've, I've witnessed that before, you know, and I think it's not well received because you can't, you can't pat yourself on the back for that. Right. right. It's like here, somebody comes in here sort of not, not judging, but challenging what I've presented and not making me feel good about it. So in some way it's, it's problematic or made to be problematic. Um, yeah, no, well, I guess I'm in your camp because I was like, yes, finally a real discussion. <laughs> well, I think the occupational science conference is, is different that way because they have a, a time for discussion at the end of each paper mm-hmm. that's real. Mm-hmm. It's, mm-hmm. It gives you an opportunity to do that. Yeah. yeah but I, it, oh, go ahead, Jenny. No, I, I was just going to follow up on that and say, I, I think it also has to do something with the size of the conference and how much your voice can be heard within those conversations. I, I have witnessed some, the start of some contentious conversations at AOTA, and I find it much harder to advance those or um, even support those going forward because it feels ar- like it's already sort of scripted from above. And if you are going to introduce something unexpected or a little bit contentious, you, you've already got sort of a system moving back against you, you know, to sort of say, this is not the place for that. Um, and I'll just to be more explicit, say I can remember several conversations around disability and accessibility at the AOTA conferences and especially coming up at the business meetings. And they, they were shut down pretty quickly and not because I don't think because people didn't have an interest in them, but it was almost like we are not prepared to respond to that right now. And that mm-hmm. was unfair to sort of surprise us with it. Um, and so I think in that very scripted orchestrated kind of um, venue where it's so large and there's so many people who work to get it to the point where it is if you if you bring in something contentious you've got really a a powerful sort of force to work against that's That's why it's a good thing to have a roommate can at least go back and (laughs) process it (laughs) oh that's a tip a tip for the the (laughs) definitely find a good roommate who you can decompress with and have good conversations with later in the hotel room. <laughs> I think roommates are a serious thing at conferences. I actually have known several people who have a roommate that they only ever see it at conference, at the annual conference for AOTA, for example, and only ever spend time with that person really socially in that venue, but they are forever each other's roommates at conference. Yeah. So I think it's a very intentional choice sometimes. I did not know. I did not know that this was the thing. I don't think. Well, it might be just who wants to share a room with you and listen. Yeah, to no one wants to share a room with me. Apparently, no. Yeah. I've actually I've never been to an in-person AOTA um, because mm. I one didn't have the money when I was, uh, but also I was doing work and trying to get a PhD at the same time, and I didn't really have a, any practice time um, before jumping straight into academia. So. My first real O occupation conferences were SSO, um, which is a very different game (laughs) than AOTA. Um, So it's been interesting to jump in this year, at least in the virtual side of AOTA and see just how much is happening in this one space. Right. They're kind of overwhelming. Um, Yeah. (laughs) There are thousands of people there and there are hundreds of sessions and big things and little things and they're all over the place. You know, it's, it's pretty much just a big, big production. Yeah. Yeah. Very, very, and very curated, right? Yes. You know, the, yes. the, the experience is just so different. And honestly, I feel like because of the size, it actually makes the experience quite stale um, and, and hard to connect with people because you're bombarded with just all of these things they want you to pay attention to versus sort of really engaging the content that's being presented and connecting with speakers and, and everyone else who is attending the, the sessions with you. Um, and so that's why I, I think appreciate more about um, smaller research conferences or even smaller practice oriented conferences. But the, I mean, conferences like AOTA serve their purpose, right? I can go there and get all my continuing ed units that I need and and move on. <laughs> I also, I do think it speaks to this sort of professional identity aspect, you know, it's like this celebration of a profession, it's coming together at a national level, and 
um, maybe a little bit cultish, but you know, also just really creating networks and um, building momentum, you know, to a certain extent. So I, I can see the value in it uh, in that. But when it comes to moving ideas forward, sometimes it's just hard to find a, a space for that. I think. So. I think the way you get into the that level of it is to uh, volunteer for committees and to get, you know basically to start doing work at conference mm. uh, to depend less on going to papers and meeting speakers, although, you know, that's important, but to get involved with people in some sort of effort. Um, mm. And usually things like special interest sections are looking for people uh, to be involved. So I have really good friends that I've met, you know, from conference and it's because of that. Mm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I definitely co-sign getting involved in the volunteer leadership positions with AOTA. My special interest section experience was, um, it was great, you know, Um, definitely have some critiques for it. But overall, I think it it provides a lot of opportunity, like you said, Virginia, to um, shape some of the things that are happening, but also make those um, professional and um, social connections that I think people are looking for that they may not get otherwise. Um, so if you're listening and interested, there are always open positions, definitely jump on it. Yeah, I think so, it's important to find those, sorry, Ryan. Did no, you go ahead. Okay. Uh, the smaller circles within the larger whole at conferences the size of, of AOTA. And, you know, I, I laughed, I told both of you that I am not, I don't consider myself a networker. So I was curious why you asked me to do this. But I will say that one of the things I have enjoyed about conferences is the way that you interact differently with your with your proximal groups when you're at conferences too so mm-hmm. when when we go as a group of faculty or faculty and students in particular from our program to an AOTA conference and a lot of times we'll find ourselves socializing with ourselves again or we certainly have one or two events where we're making certain to socialize with ourselves and you interact with one another in a really different way too so mm-hmm. I think having that opportunity to sort of embrace your professional um, discipline together, but also remember that you are a cohort together is also an interesting thing to do at a conference. Yeah, some of those, I mean, it's so interesting, some of the boundaries that shift, um, I won't say blur, but shift um, <laughs> uh, when it comes to some of the conversations. Like, I remember um, Dr. Antoine Belliard, uh, this was my first semester at UNC, he was teaching the action theories class, and we went to SSO, and it was like, we're sitting down to have a beer together. (laughs) And we had a beer together. And then we were talking about like choosing advisors. And I was like, I would love for you to be my advisor. And he was like, are you asking me right now? (laughs) Like, are you asking me on a date? Um, And it was just like this funny moment of like, oh, I guess this is, this is okay. Like it's, you don't have to go through formal processes. You know, it's just like, you're having conversations with people and able to build relationships. And he said, yes, you can all congratulate me. (laughs) Um, And you finished. Yeah. And I finished and we got there. So five years later, you know, it's still a relationship. So, (laughs) Um, but yeah, it's it's nice to see how some of those relationships can shift based on the context and the different things that you're, you're able to do with each other. um, in those spaces. Yeah, no, I can actually remember my first SSO conference, which was, we've been in Kentucky several times, right? But this was Kentucky, Mm -hmm. I guess, 2014, somewhere in there. And really wasn't finding myself socialized or trying to network much. And Virginia was the one who pulled me to the side. And it's like, what are you doing later? Like, (laughs) um is this a date it's like like, who like who are you getting together with like what are you doing besides going to to sessions and um at first I was like nothing and to which you gave me a look and I was like okay well obviously I should be doing something um (laughs) so I think that was the first time I'm like you know these conferences are meant to be places where I can sort of let my hair down and build community outside of the folks I'm there with, you know, mm-hmm. outside of UNC. But even with folks with, you know, within our, our UNC cohort to um, just socialize in a different way, you know, obviously still in a professional way, but understanding that the, the doctoral student 
faculty relationship is, is a bit different using those spaces to, to, to connect and, and build in other ways. So um, now I make sure I do that all the time. Thank you, Virginia. <laughs> well, when you call and ask me if I would do this, I was sort of amused because you were positioning yourself as having been a student, a doctoral student, but uh, now it's mm -hmm. the responsibility of you guys to socialize the up and coming students. Uh, yeah, you have to be the one scary. Facilitate. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's a bit I scary don't know if to I think about. My habits on. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. And sometimes I think that the the students coming behind us might use conferences to get away from us. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, actually, I think that's important. I think it's important to give your students space. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. uh, and sometimes you don't want to be with your students. <laughs> that is also true. a space where they can talk about you. <laughs> uh, often while drinking, but, um, you know, I, th I think that's one of those blurring of boundary things that you have to watch for is when you should be there and when you shouldn't. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So... Any, yeah. any tips and tricks? I feel like there's a thought brewing right there. Well, I, I was just thinking about one of the things that I have often experienced at um, the bigger AOTA conferences with students, um, entry-level students, is that they often feel a little bit lost in terms of choosing what to go to, and they'll seek out advice at some point. And it, and it usually works pretty well that you can lead them towards something that you think is you know, at a good level for them, somebody who's an interesting speaker, a topic that they have an interest in. And often they'll say, so do you want to come with us? And I think, um, no, I, I really don't. <laughs> I chose this for you because I think you'll enjoy it, but I've been there. I, I know what this person's going to say and they're a great speaker, but I don't need to hear it for the fourth time. So I think that it's, um, you know, it's a nice relationship that can be a little bit of guidance oriented, but also allow that independence and let, mm. let people sort of discover a bit on their own. Yeah, that's funny. <laughs> it's like been, been, been there, heard that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the other thing I think is important is when you go to a conference, not, you know, Jenny's my conference roommate, but I don't think we ever go to sessions together. Rarely, yeah. Uh, SSO, maybe. Yeah, maybe because there aren't that many to choose from, but um, it's, <laughs> I don't like to go to uh, sessions with Johnny because she asks such intelligent, thoughtful questions. Uh. <laughs> but is the question uh, fronted by like three minutes of praise for the, for the session? No, not, <laughs> no. <laughs> Do those drive you crazy too? Oh, those yes. drive me so crazy. Yes. I can't handle it. That I'm just like, where is your question? Where is your question? <laughs> well, you have to tell people how awesome they are. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that goes back to what you said about things we should not be socializing into. I feel like we're so socialized into that idea that we have to praise someone, you know, extraordinarily before we ask them a question, whether it's hard or not. And I, I really wish we could desocialize from that practice. Maybe. Normalize asking the question, yeah. and not the flop. <laughs> I guess maybe the thing you could say is, you know, you have really made me think. Mm -hmm. Yeah, then ask your question. <laughs> <laughs> well, I just think it's a little narcissistic, to be honest, just because I'm like, this is their presentation. Ask a question that helps them elaborate their ideas, not, I mean, to a certain extent, there's certain places where it is meant to be more discussion and you talk, but it's, it's like a, a banter that's more than just you going on a long rant that's 15 minutes long so that you're the only person who can be a part of the discussion. Um, it's, uh, I will get on a soapbox all day long about that. We're <laughs> highlighting how you're connected to their work and all the important uh, work you've also done in that. Yes. You've yes. to point out before you ask the question. Yes. I have walked out of a session because someone went on and on like that. I was like, you know, I, I, I can't. Were you the Got presenter? <laughs> no, I, the presenter should have walked out with me too, honestly. But, um, oh gosh, yes, that is such a headache to deal with. <laughs> well, I, I think it, you, Virginia mentioned going to conferences outside your profession, which we might get to, but I also think it's really worthwhile going to more international conferences and OT mm -hmm. because some of that doesn't go on for many reasons. And 
I think part of it is cultural, but I think also part of it is language oriented that many times people are speaking a second language when they're going there. And so they don't take a lot of time to do those sort of extraneous speaking around things. They get more to the point when they have questions or when they have discussion points that they and want. Some of that's cultural too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's yeah, absolutely he, true. When I go to Spanish speaking conferences that I've, I've been to, that is like, I'm sitting there one rehearsing my question in my head very intensely and shortening it as much as possible. So I have less object, like opportunity for error. <laughs> mm, mm-hmm. Now, do you all have a favorite international conference that you attend? So I've attended the Kotec conference um, several times in several different places. And, mm-hmm. you know, one of the things that I like, I feel often very alone at these, those conferences if I haven't gone with someone, but what I realize about them is that many people feel that way because they're coming from typically, I think it's something like 22 different countries belong to Kotec. And so everyone's a little bit out of place. I mean, they may have a small group that they came with, but there's generally a good bit of understanding that you're going to network with people or, or socialize with people who you don't know and who come from different places. And so there's space made for that. Um, mm-hmm. And I find that that's a little bit truer than, than at some of the US conferences I go to. Hmm. Occupation Europe is another good one. Same kind of thing. Also, I think in, well, I've gone to a lot of Canadian OS conferences and they've been really good too. But I think in, Europe and Australia and other parts of the world, they also take time in their conferences to have breaks together. Mm-hmm. So you all go to some place and they pour tea or whatever. Um, yeah. yeah, that's very true. Yeah, actually, I, when I was at a conference in Colombia, they had a big dance at the end, like uh, in the conference hall, and they had like a performance. It was really, and everyone was just dancing, and it was just like, this is so wonderful (laughs) yeah to just be able to like do that together as a big conference and sort of celebrate um the i think it was at the end of the conference but i think was it kotec in sweden where they did that jenny yeah well yeah Yeah. we had a big dance at kotec in sweden and um but i you know in the world federation conferences of ot are also really good for this they're just bigger like uh, you know bigger venues but i still remember that's where I've had some experiences of sort of having my eyes open to how people think differently about occupation, which mm-hmm. has been really helpful. Um, I still remember the WFOT conference in Chile and hearing people speak more from that sort of global South perspective and critique some of the sort of assumptions that around OT that have been made in, in the US in particular, but in um, more sort of Northern Western ways of thinking. And it was so refreshing to have people really take it on and speak really boldly about, not just about the ideas, but also about the fact that so many things are published in English. And, you know, Mm. could we also open up publications to other languages and and really let people express themselves more fully if they're writing in a language in which they feel more competent? The other thing that was interesting there was how political people were. Mm -hmm. I think at AOTA, you're never political. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. The OTs have no fear of politics. They embrace it and work with it and dance with right. it. I love the Chilean OTs for that. They do There's that so much a part work. of their community practice. Mm-hmm. Uh, Absolutely. I think across South America, but. You know, I mean, I've only attended one international conference, the World Federation of OT Conference in, in Cape Town. And it was the first time that I attended a conference that really sort of celebrated the local culture, um, or even, I think, really attended to the economic piece of it. Like, you know, we attend conferences that always do a, a land acknowledgement, right? And it's like, all right, you, you say you give honor to the ancestral lands of said group, but how does the conference sort of really address the issue economically or socially outside of just, you know, naming the place where you are. And I feel like there was sort of the f- that particular conference was the first time that I, I saw real intention given to those sorts of social issues, like really engaging um, the, the community in the conference um, outside of, you know, being vendors, uh, that sort of thing. But, but yeah. 
I'll punt it back to you, Ryan. (laughs) (laughs) I was just going to ask what other sort of non-OT conferences have you enjoyed and what's that experience been like? Or maybe not enjoyed, I guess. (laughs) Well, I've gone to anthropology uh, conferences, both AAA and the uh, applied anthropology meetings. And, you know, I feel pretty isolated at those conferences. I would never take my husband to AOTA or to any OT conferences because I had too many people I wanted to see and interact with. Um, <laughs> but I always loved it if he'd go to, with me to the anthro conferences because I'd have someone to have dinner with. Applied anthro meetings did one really interesting thing, which was to have a couple of, or at least a day before the conference actually began when they looked at the lo- location they were in. They had tours available and... Uh, many times dealing with social issues. And I thought that was, it kind of ties in with your comments about South Africa, you know, Mm -hmm. linking the conference more to where it was and what was happening there. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I've had that experience on a much smaller scale at a folklore conference, actually a state folklore conference. And I've been just to a couple of those, but I think folklorists uh, are pretty attentive to place and, So in particular, wherever we've been, there's been an invitation to people who live in that place to be part of the conference and to do some presentations on their own. So, you know, it may be a local storyteller or someone who does a local craft and and their craft may be specific to resources in the area. And so they come into the conference too. And, And it's typically, those typically aren't as expensive. And so it's not, you know, you're not asking people to lift a heavy load to be able to pay to come to the conference but also just in terms of content I mean it's going to be all about music and ritual and storytelling and um, you know maybe home cures and things like that so that the content is pretty interesting to engage with Um, and I've been to gerontology conferences Uh, they they've tended to be fairly scholarly but nice that they're interdisciplinary so again people aren't um you know, people aren't dividing into sort of predetermined groups because you're coming from all over and have very different backgrounds coming into the space. But it sometimes takes a little bit longer to warm up to how you speak about what you do because Mm -hmm. everyone's speaking a little differently about it as well. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I've attended a couple like one and two day conferences in social work and also public health. But I've always made sure sort of the conference theme was aligned to things that made sense for me as an occupational scientist and occupational therapist. So even in the setting, I didn't feel so out of place. Um, You know, if the theme was around sort of like black consciousness in practice or um, just community-based practice and underserved communities sorts of things just made sense for me to attend. I really haven't challenged myself to, to venture outside of um, things that seem more directly related to, to what I do or am interested in, but um, I have always wanted to attend a um, anthropology professional meeting, just haven't done it yet. Well, anthropologists, first of all, the papers are very interesting. Uh, so probably for me, they were always more interesting than what I would get at AOTA. Uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> so that part of the conference was always good. They also, in their exhibit hall, it was all books. One oh. publisher after another of wonderful, wonderful books. It was, you know, I love the exhibit hall. Yeah, that's nice. So I have a question for you all. Um, when it comes to tips for us, you know, earlier career people, what are some faux pas that we should avoid at conferences? What are things that we should not do probably or try and socialize ourselves out of? <laughs> well, the worst one, the worst one is to wear your badge when you're out on the streets. <laughs> Corny move. Oh my God. <laughs> uh, a somewhat dangerous move actually. Uh, really? You're in a strange city oh, uh, and you're know. wearing a badge. It's telling everybody that you don't know where you wow, are. Wow, I've never thought about that Yes, before. excellent yeah. point, excellent point. Mm. And mm-hmm. maybe the next one is not wearing your badge when you're in the, the sessions. So that <laughs> when you come up to me and you say, oh, remember when we, I can at least look at your badge and figure out why I should remember what. <laughs> Who are you? <laughs> yeah. 
<laughs> I thought you were gonna say so. You know, you can slide out of the session if you need to, and people don't know you're an attendee. <laughs> but don't do that either, people. Like I'm saying that laughing, but you know, because believe me, somebody knows who you are. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I don't know about faux pas. I would have to reveal all the stupid, awkward things I've done at conference. But Ooh, uh, tell us a story. I <laughs> <laughs> don't know if I'm ready to reveal that, but you know, I had thought about a faux pas that's actually done by people who run conferences, not by people who attend them, which mm -hmm. is actually the idea that you um, you assume that everyone knows the inside jokes. And I've run into that several times that, you know, there'll be references in a an opening or a keynote or whatever to oh, everybody knows this or that, or every, everybody knows what we've dealt with and getting ready for this, but everybody doesn't know. And um, it, it makes you feel like there's sort of an us and them mentality, or they're the, the people who are in the inner circle and people who are in the outer circle. Um, and I think that's true, even sometimes people who are very well-meaning and want to be open to everyone, but they'll create these sort of practices or rituals of, you know, getting together in a certain place that they assume everybody feels welcome in. Um, mm. Um, or that everybody feels a part of. And that I think sometimes is just not the case. And it, there's always going to be some of that, no matter how well-intentioned you are. But I think we could just make pay some attention to that. In, in terms of personal faux pas, I would say I'm terrible about, I'm very awkward about approaching a speaker that I want to talk to. And I would say my advice would be don't approach them right after they give a big presentation because they're probably just ready to stop talking to people. And, um, <laughs> instead, maybe send an email later telling them how much you like their presentation and can you talk to them sometimes or just stalk them throughout the rest of the conference <laughs> and see them sitting yeah, drinking coffee and just be like hey can I have some coffee with you right when they take a big sip yeah <laughs> I don't know for me as a presenter I sometimes like the the cool down of answering questions at the end um you know I always feel awkward if somebody's asking me a lot of questions and there's clearly other people who want to have a conversation, but I enjoy sort of like the unpacking where I'm like, no, no longer in front of everyone, but I'm still talking about it. Yeah. Um, but it, it makes me very anxious when there's like three people waiting to have a conversation. And then there, there's one person who's just on and on and on. Oh, you know, no, that's the biggest faux pas when you're presenting, not ending on time. Oh, yeah. That is absolutely the biggest. <laughs> it makes everybody uncomfortable. Yes. Yes. You have to plan your time well. I've only had that happen once and I was so embarrassed. I was like, I cannot do that again. Can't let it happen again. And it was at an SSO conference and on the last day. So I, it, it, part of it, I'm just kind of like, oh, people don't care. They were ready to leave too. <laughs> you know? <laughs> <laughs> but but yeah you have you have to to plan your times like don't don't be the first person in your session who goes over time because it just takes away from every speaker who has to go after you it's not it's just not collegial at all <laughs> and I may be the only person but in the audience it makes me very uncomfortable I'm watching the person hold up the you know you've got one minute Oh no, and like start leafing through trying to get everything in. And I just, you know, I can feel my blood pressure go up when that happens. <laughs> mm -hmm. I don't hear what they're saying after that. Yeah. yeah. Become worried for them. That's true. <laughs> yes. Yes. Well, so the other one I think is that people usually, not usually, a lot of people go out in the evening. Mm -hmm. uh, which I have no problem with at all. That's where you get a lot of good contacts and whatever, but you need to make the next morning session. Yeah. <laughs> you, know, you really do. And it's, uh, you know, partying at the expense of the conference content that you need to be considerate of. Yeah, I mean, I think that's like a real talk conversation. And like, you know, I think that there is a lot of drinking that happens at conferences. And there's a there's sometimes even a culture of like, let's go all get drinks together. 
um, especially for people who maybe aren't drinking or don't, that's not really part of what they want to be doing at a conference. I think it sometimes can be hard, but on the other end of the spectrum, there are people who go to conferences to drink <laughs> and, yeah. you know, take it too far. And that can be a real challenge um, for both yeah. presenting the next day, but also just actually maintaining the, the sort of professional relationship that you probably <laughs> want with the, the people around oh. you. It's even AOTA is a small world and -hmm. people do notice and remember things. And if you're, you know, looking to change jobs or get a job or any of those things, you really need to be careful. Mm -hmm. Uh, Mm -hmm. The other thing I think that can be a faux pas is talking about the night before. Uh, The night before was then, and you don't need to tell everybody about how your professor was acting outrageously. Uh, That was Jenny, I'm sure. Yeah, no, it was me actually. But <laughs> yeah, you know, my favorite place at a conference is the hotel bar. Yeah, mm-hmm. because people come in and out, and you get to talk to people. Yeah, yeah. But it's something it's a- to be mindful of. You're away, and you know, mm. it's been a long day, and I think being mindful of that is important. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm glad you brought up the discretion part, like being being discreet in your socializing. You know, even if you, like you said, got to have a professor who is a bit outrageous, it's like, leave, leave that where it happened, right? You know, there's no, there's no need to sort of broadcast that, that information, um, but also keeping yourself in check, you know, and if you are going to party, you know, do it with folks who can help keep you in line a little bit. <laughs> And make sure that you go to that session the next morning. So, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, right. You brought up an interesting point about the sort of drinking culture of of conferences, and I can remember sort of seeing a discussion on Twitter about normalizing not drinking um, at conferences, and just how problematic that that sort of so the social part of that um, um, of the culture of conferences is you know, can be traumatizing to people, but, but also is um, not necessarily the best way to build community um, mm-hmm. at conferences. And so um, really great way to get an advisor though. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Uh, yeah. That, that, that definitely worked for you. Yeah. For you, for sure. Well, but, uh, <laughs> the transactional perspective on occupation probably has its origins in part in a bar in San Antonio at the first SSO conference. Uh, wow. Ooh, so. I like this, this background story. <laughs> Please tell more. <laughs> it was a direct response to a couple of sessions discussed mm-hmm. over a beer with somebody and mm-hmm. well, with Malcolm Cutchin. Uh, yeah. yeah. So, so, yeah. Yeah, I, th- I mean, there. that's the, the beauty of it is I think it does allow for those real conversations to sometimes slip past the, the professional filters that we sometimes put on and we can be a little bit more honest with each other. But um, at the same time, I wish that that was possible without that sort of necess- like that lubricant of, of alcohol um, and that we could have some of those more honest conversations in a way that was fun and engaging um, and didn't always require people to be drinking, um, you know, for sober people as well as otherwise um, who just don't mm-hmm. want to be, who have like a 8 a.m. presentation the next morning <laughs> and don't want to be doing that. So um, it's just, I think it's definitely, again, something to just pay attention to, um, but not necessarily fully exclude uh, from conference activities <laughs> to a certain extent. <laughs> You know, SSO has been a nice antidote to that in some ways in that even though I I know I laugh sometimes about some of the occupational balance activities, but they do give you some other way to connect with people other than Mm. just around late night drinking or something. You, you know, you go and experience something together. Um, I also think paying attention to the places where conferences are held and getting out into those places with people really can matter. It makes a difference Mm -hmm. to sort of experience together where you are and you know, what might feel good to you and what might be a surprise and things like that. Mm-hmm. So, I, and I will totally credit this to Virginia Dickey because 
I know that I would not have found myself walking around Santiago, Chile with, with Claire Hawking if it were not for Virginia Dickey because Claire Hawking would have said, who are you and why do you want to take a walk with me? But, but when we landed in Chile, uh, we dropped our luggage and Virginia and I were rooming together along with my partner, Sally. And so we went to meet Claire and we ended up walking around the city for, I, I wanna say two to three hours, Virginia, at least it felt like oh, that. Yeah. Because Claire's orientation as a New Zealander was that you deal with jet lag by walking. And right. I still have these vivid, vivid memories of the city and seeing all the flowers and the dogs that were around and you know, sitting every once in a while, we'd stop like for a cup of tea or something and sit and talk for a little while at a table. And I will forever have that memory of those hours spent getting to know Santiago Chile because it was with Claire Hawking and with Virginia. and we were sort of talking OT, but also just sort of experiencing a city together. Such powerful relationship building. Yeah. And through doing that together. reminds me of us having lunch in a, a market uh, with this little restaurant that was stuck in there. And the waiters were all speaking Spanish. And next to us, there was a table with a German couple, who I think were on their honeymoon maybe. And Jenny, started translating the Spanish to German for them, which really impressed me. That's amazing. That badly translating. I got the German fine, but the Spanish was a little weak, but at least we got them closer to what they wanted to order. <laughs> I think they were allergic to garlic. So there was something going on about, about the garlic translation. That's funny. I think one of my favorite conference memories is actually not even really part. I mean, it is part of the conference, but it was one of the first times I presented at um, SSO and um, I was in um, Chetna Sessi's room and I think she had invited everyone to the room so that I could practice. Um, and oh, I remember I think, that. Yeah, Kalia was there. <laughs> Um, and I like, we all sat and we like worked with each other's presentations and like, I just got to present the, the presentation I was going to do the next day. And there was like solid feedback that was like, you need to reorder this. You need to do this. This is too much. Um, and it really improved the quality of my presentation, but it was the first time that I felt like this camaraderie come together that wasn't around an assignment that felt like true collegiality, um, you know, among the students. I mean, we were all really good friends and like collegial, but it was like this moment of professional, like we are offering mentorship um, in a way that didn't, wasn't around being graded or anything, uh, which was just so cool. And I think it was a really wonderful welcome into like the presentation experience um, and to have people like organize it for me so that I didn't have to be like, come just listen to me talk. Uh, it was just such a wonderful moment for me to grow into the community and, and to feel like I had support as a professional. I didn't just have to get up on the presentation and just do it. Um, I wanted you to feel good going into it the first time, like really wanting all the doc students who were attending for the first time for it to be a really good experience. So, mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. That's important too, because it's, uh, it points out that it isn't just faculty looking out for students, it's students looking out for each other. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And, you know, good to go to different sessions, but then plan to get together later and talk about your day. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. 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 I think one of my favorite memories is like it, it has, it's like not tied to students or professors or anything like that, but really Julian attending conferences with me and him really sort of getting into occupational therapy and occupational science. Cause he, I don't know if I should put this out there now, but I mean, he he doesn't pay registration, right? But manages to go to the exhibit hall. Like he attended my presentation at Whoop It, like, and just having those conversations with him about his own understanding about what I do, but the sessions that he sat in on here in Elawani's keynote, just like all of those things. And like really seeing him get excited about, about, you know, the, the things that are, that are important to me. Mm -hmm. um, and so now he's all about tagging along for, for conferences. So <laughs> don't be surprised at a future conference. You don't look up and see him in your session. 
and he's going to be that one asking a question. Yeah. Yeah. It was quite surprising to, you know, be in New Orleans and I'm walking around a poster session, walk around a corner and see him. It's like, what are you doing? (laughs) Yeah. Virginia, I think you shared a memory, but I don't know that you shared a best memory or a good memory. Uh, Well, I mean, it was a good memory, but it wasn't. Do you have a different memory that you want to share? I suppose I was at a conference in England. Uh, I've been a keynote speaker. There was an occupation in UK then um, in Eastbourne, down on the south coast of England. And one of the other speakers was Stefan Josefsson. And I had not met him before, but he was a friend of Betty Hazelkiss's, who by that time, via conferences, had become a friend of mine. And she told him to look out for me. So we were going to a host's house for dinner that night that had time to kill. And I don't know, somehow he and I ended up walking together to a bench looking out over the sea and just sitting there talking for a while. And, you know, it was the beginning of a, of a good friendship and uh, I think benefits for both of us in terms of things we've done with our professional lives since then. That's and of course, memory. It was not a conference memory quite, but uh, I was doing committee work with Betty. Um, That's how I got to know her. We grew up 45 miles from each other, but I went to the same university, but didn't know each other. Uh, Wow. And after we were in Arlington and after the session, she had not seen the Vietnam War Memorial. And so we took the subway into downtown DC and went to the war memorial and it was a thunderstorm uh, at night. It was dark and there was thunder and lightning and we were sharing an umbrella and it was just really, really neat. Uh, Something I'll always remember. You're such an ethnographer, all the details, all the picture. I love your storytelling. It does make me think though, I mean, as OTs, we know this, but like, just make sure to do stuff with people, like do things at conferences that are not just conference doing um, to connect with people. But also I think another thing that I've seen is sending people, if you know someone's going to a conference where you know someone at, like giving people heads up to look for each other. And Mm -hmm. I think that's also something that I've seen done and been really helpful at times. One of the other side of that though, is I remember the end of a conference planning to have dinner with a friend who was having a rough time and a mutual friend was leaving and asked us to, I think with him there, have her student join us for dinner. Mm. And that was not a good experience for any of us. Yeah. (laughs) First of all, he could only afford to go to a pizza place and we wanted a nice restaurant and you know, it sort of went downhill from there. <laughs> so, you know, be careful about who you connect and how. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And when, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Professional boundaries. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, the money piece is very important too, right? Because conferences are not cheap. No. Not cheap at all. Um, And I think because of that, they have the reputation of being elitist, right? That they're a place that only faculty can attend, although we are by far nowhere close to being rich rich people. Um, But it just seems so unattainable for um, students to be able to go and have the experiences that they really want to have because of the money. Um, Just so, so expensive. Yeah. Um, I'd say students and practitioners. I, and, and part mm. of that is having to prioritize what you spend your money on. But I, I think I only attended two national conferences in the 13, 14 years that I practiced as a clinician before I came into academia. And it's not because I feel like I can so much better afford them now, but I feel like it's much more of a priority. It's an expectation too, in terms of the work that I do. But I am always impressed when, you know, I run into former students who are practitioners. And they will often say that, you know, they really had to make some choices about whether or not to come to conference this year. They were having to really prioritize other things that they 
you know, couldn't do or had decided to set aside so that they could spend money to come to conference. Um, and it's a good reminder for me because I do think that it's, I feel like the virtual world that we've been in this past year might um, survive to some extent because it was more accessible to a lot of people, both from mm -hmm. a financial perspective and a travel perspective. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. The uh, other thing that faculty have is time. And yeah. usually yeah. clinical settings will only let one person go at a time. Mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. So, yeah. 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 I think, I mean, that's also important, I think, for the diversity aspect in OT, if, if people, uh, and we don't have, if we don't have practitioners who can access the same resources or um, come from different backgrounds, and, and I think that's a concrete thing that AOTA can be looking at specifically to offer, I mean, that's what COTAD is doing, is offering new practitioner awards to help them pay for things like going to conference or doing a project or or those sorts of things that then might be able to connect them a little bit more with the community. Um, but I think it helps to, if we can support concretely managing those costs, we can bring really powerful OT voices to the table um, and a, a more diverse OT voices to the table um, who might not feel comfortable or not feel like they can afford to come to these sorts of conferences in the future. Mm -hmm. So AOTA, if you're listening, concrete strategy, there you go. <laughs> Did it need a task force? I don't think so. Ooh, shade, shady, shady queen. <laughs> but true, but very, very true. Yes. I have a feeling that what's going to extend beyond the uh, virtual world we've been living in is that committees and task forces and that kind of thing are going to start being more virtual. And it used to be that those were in person and, and somebody was paying for it. Uh, wow. Yeah. And I suspect that's, there's going to be less of that. And that was where you were with a small group and uh, had a chance to get to know people. I was actually just talking with Ben about that because I think conferences will maybe still stay because of all that other stuff that happens around conferences and the, the networking and that sort of thing. But like the very task oriented groupings, like I can think of like R1 reviewers or something, you know, like those sorts of things will probably move more into a virtual space, I would say, so that they don't have to pay for everyone to all come to one place yeah. um, potentially. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So if there was, I guess, one take home message you wanted our listeners to know about attending conferences, what would it be? Virginia, I want you to come up with something so I don't have well, to. <laughs> I guess I would say to, to stop looking for the perfect conference and to go to things that are not necessarily what you think you're interested in. Mm. Uh, to go to sessions that are not in your own field. Uh, and, you know, just to open up your, your mind to things that are different. Note to self. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, I'll tag onto that. Don't necessarily be swayed by other people's opinions of which conferences are better within a field. I, I will grant that there's probably something to the upward mobility you might have in your career if you connect with the people that people think you should connect with. But I, it, I'm just thinking of a, um, a situation like in gerontology where there's an academic conference and more of a practice-based conference. And the latter has been more enriching for me, but it, it wouldn't be recommended, you know, in terms of an academic mm -hmm. conference. So. Yeah. yeah. Wow. Well, thank you for that. Um, Ryan, Leah, any... oh, I was going to do the same to you. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, I was going to ask you, what do you think is your biggest takeaway from what we've talked about today when it comes to learning? Um, yeah. Um, well, for one, not to take yourself too seriously, right? That we are at conferences where we're in a position to learn. So be less worried about sort of branding and presenting yourself as it is from really listening to the voices that that are presenting to you. Um, because there's there's nothing worse than paying money to attend something right and feel like you go away with nothing. Um, so really sort of being intentional about listening and engaging the content than worrying about yourself in the situation. Yeah. 
Yeah, that's actually kind of what I was going to say in thinking about being intentional about the process and not just intentional even about the content, but about the people and the relationships and the activities that you're involved in during the conference and, and really use it as a place to build community, um, not just build your CV. Um, mm -hmm. And I think that can be a really powerful way to build momentum as somebody who wants to create change or do program development or do research like these are places where you can if you go about it intentionally and not always like sort of creepily strategic <laughs> um, <laughs> but like do it in a way that just is connecting with people and asking good questions and showing interest but also offering you know answers to questions when they're asked of you um, I think that's one of my things is like academia doesn't have to be as strategic as sometimes people want you to believe it is. Mm -hmm. um, and it can be really about the people um, and just the ideas and connecting. So yeah. I think that's what I've learned and reaffirmed today in our conversation. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, again, I cannot say thank you enough to both Dr. Dickey and Dr. Womack for joining us today um, and for enriching the experiences for both Ryan and I in, in our conferencing over the years. So um, you both have contributed to the, the very just great times that I've had um, uh, both at OT conferences and, and otherwise. So we appreciate you. <laughs> Thank you all so much. And we hope you'll Join us again sometime to talk about another interesting and exciting topic. <laughs> we will see you all on the next episode of Dr. Thoughts. Until next time. Okay.